You're listening to And hello, everybody. Welcome back to Good Pop. It is episode 12. It is Friday, June the 26th, 2020. I'm saying the date out loud just so I can get this episode out on time for once. Uh, my name is Marvin Yeh, and joining me once again to talk about all the good pop culture that gets us through our days, um, welcome to self-proclaimed professional Asian-American, Jess Ju. I'm a, I'm a self-proclaimed nothing now, Marvin. <laughs> I don't even know what's going on. Have you relinquished your title? Is that the thing? I relinquish all things. I'm, I'm trying to, you know, I'm on like the, I'm on like a diet trying to be, but instead of like a diet on food, I'm like trying to be a diet against like racist and <laughs> capitalism and imperialism. Like I can't go cold turkey, right? We can't go cold turkey because that's like it's gonna send shocks. But like trying to, I trying mean, to work towards a better version of myself. You're going on your Arya Stark journey, where once you lose everything, then you can start regaining it again. I, I didn't, actually didn't watch a lot of Game of Thrones. I have no idea if I'm using the right metaphor um, yeah, here. <laughs> Asian doesn't have a name. <laughs> Asian doesn't have a name, but but see the the problem with that metaphor, but maybe it's accurate, is they kind of botch the end there. So um, not for know, her. She, through, eh, yeah. she kind of goes through all this development, and you're kind of like, wait, why was that necessary? <laughs> but she did defeat the the Ice King. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, that's his name, right? Now, the it should have just yes. ended there. <laughs> Should have just ended there. Two episodes, the end. Yep, yep. That was the episode where everything was like that was the awesome action episode with where you couldn't see shit, right? I really liked it though. I thought it was actually a good episode. Um, Like, I mean, I could see, but it was also like I felt it was moody. I think it created like an actual feeling. Like there was a thought behind it. Like there were things I didn't like, like the weird thing about her having to lose her virginity all of a sudden, like that just is smacks of something like men wrote, you know? Um, but overall, oh, I'm kind of into that. I was like, yeah, if I was going to die, I'd want to get some before, you know, the it, it, she was also not battles. satisfied. Right. She was like, that's it. She was not. Well, that was rude. I'm, I'm fine with her wanting sex, but I kind of want it. Like, I don't know. I felt like she would have like had sex before. I don't know. Maybe that's what it was. It's like, yeah. Anyway, joining us also <laughs> is culture editor, Han Wen. How's it going on? Hi. Apparently, I just want to talk about Arya Stark. But uh, yes, hey, it's it's going. It's, it is going. I brought up the metaphor. I take responsibility for our <laughs> tangent there. Um, on this episode, we're going to be talking about the new Padma Lakshmi Hulu um, food series, Taste the Nation, which just released last week. Um, I think there are, what, eight episodes? Ten episodes? They're all out. Um, we're going we're, we're gonna to talk about it. Uh, after the break but before we get there let's find out what pop culture has been getting us through this past week um jess what's been popping uh well in a i took a hiatus but i am now back on the nicholas cage filmography (laughs) exploration um and well for unrelated for unrelated to this podcast um i have in my personal life a friend who is a big fan of national treasure it's Mm. his favorite movie and or one of his favorite movies. He's a big film guy, um, and okay. it's his birthday coming up. And unfortunately, uh, it's a big birthday. It's his thirtieth. Unfortunately, though, we are not going to be able to celebrate in person as we typically do with this friend group. So I've been watching National Treasure in preparation for creating a basically a experience for him for his birthday. I won't go into too much details because no one cares. But, you know, very enjoyable popcorn flicks. Nick Cage really dialing it down to like three on the Nick Cage level. Um, Really it's- love the clues. Love a good mystery. But very weird watching this while simultaneously going on Twitter and kind of seeing the discourse around the movement for anti-racism in our own history, in our American history, right? So National Treasure is very much based in historical figures like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. And, oh, man, we could have a whole podcast just trashing Thomas Jefferson (laughs) Um, and Abraham Lincoln and all that stuff who 
we learned, you know, we learned it. They were presented to us in school in a certain light of, you know, heroism and courage and kind of genius. And then, you know, you start to learn they're, they're also just trash. Wait, what's our which, beef with Abe Lincoln? I mean, he gets too much credit for being the great emancipator. In mm. reality, he really just wanted to keep the union together. And for him, that meant he had to get rid of slavery, not because they were, you That's know, it was true. a moral obligation or it was bad, but or like he cared necessarily cared about these people. And even past emancipation, he did not see, you know, black people, black Americans as equals. He was very much like, OK, we'll freed you, but now please leave. Like, we can't be equal. And Nicole Hannah-Jones does a really good kind of deep dive into this in her uh, podcast, 1619 Project, which I talked about last week. Um, and it's just like, you know, it's 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 unlearning what we were taught and then relearning. Um, <laughs> also um, goes to the theme that we've been kind of learning these past few months, which is like, just don't have heroes. People are people. Don't have like, heroes. And every, you know, like, again, like every structure we inhabit in this country is racist, right? To various degrees. But our school system is racist and built on white supremacy as well. And uh, it's just funny because this movie, the second one, I don't know if you've watched it. Definitely not as good as the first one. But the second National Treasure ends in Mount Rushmore, which has been the subject of a lot of Twitter conversation in some groups because you know Mount Rushmore was a sacred site to the native peoples mm-hmm. in America and they very deliberately chose to like destroy and vandalize it by carving four white men into the face of this sacred mountain and allegedly the sculpture was a Ku Klux Klan master and like all that good stuff so like watching it and kind of giving the Hollywood treatment of some of these things feels kind of iffy and gross now <laughs> yeah. as much as I enjoy Nick Cage and as much as I enjoy you know like clue hunting and detective work so another one of these kind of things we have to examine and talk about how are we portraying things are we portraying them correctly authentically with the right voice I feel like we need a dedicate a whole episode just on problematic faves because i feel like the more i think the, the more we learn as people and as like a society the more we realize some of the stuff we like grew up with kind of sucked and some yeah. stuff we, we knew sucked as like i don't know if you saw the story that they're finally gonna change splash mountain um the theming of it from song of the south to um the princess and the frog um which i guess is is better i've never seen the princess and the frog so i, I, Sorry. I oh it's it's pretty good. I think <laughs> okay. it's better than Tangled. I like it better than Tangled. Uh, yeah, it was better than Tangled. I, I'll, yeah, I, I liked it. It was, it's just, it didn't stick in my head, you know. Mm. So, but yeah, it was better. Um, I mean, like the narrative that the narratives that we've always seen, you do. It's not just the victors who have been controlling the narrative. It's the supremacy that's been controlling the narrative and so yeah th- those are all the like when we had faves or heroes or whatever the they definitely um, also it's pr right like you know this world runs on propaganda and public relations and <sighs> this dude freed the slaves um sounds way better than this dude wanted to you know not look like a bad president who lost the country <laughs> Right. Yeah, I mean, that's like the same thing with the lost cause and confederacy. Instead of saying we got our asses handed to us, it's like, no, we had this righteous cause and we just were outnumbered. And but we, you know, we're going to keep the confederacy and or whatever that stuff alive in the South and honor those things and those great generals. Not that we want to keep our slaves, you know. Mm. So, yeah. Oh, my God. I whole ass was told on my eighth grade field trip to Washington, D.C., we we visited Arlington Cemetery, which for those of you who do not know, is like our big national military armed forces cemetery, um, which was built on the property of the Lees, Robert E. Lee's family as kind of a big fuck you because he couldn't come back because they started burying a bunch of Union soldiers there. <laughs> and I so clearly remember our tour guide telling us this bullshit like narrative of Robert E. Lee being actually like a wonderful person who just like quote loved Virginia so much unquote that he had to fight for the South because that was his home but he wasn't really that bad a guy and we should honor him because he tried to work for reunification after the Civil War like 
I so clearly remember this because I unfortunately believed it at the time being what 13 years old and I'm just so <laughs> mad right now. Mm-hmm. I mean you want to believe like you want to believe the world isn't bad especially as a kid. And it's like a teacher telling me this, right? So what what am I supposed to believe? I'm not getting an alternative <laughs> source of information. So, yeah, but uh, enough about my sad experience. Han, what is <laughs> popping with you? Okay, so I finished Red, White, and Royal uh, Royal Blue, and apparently I couldn't get enough of, you know, young gay love stories. So um, my, my co-worker had written a review of Love, Victor, which is the Hulu series that's a spinoff of Love, Simon. Now, Love, Simon... I remember watching it, I think, on a plane or something and just thinking, like, that wasn't great, but oh, well, you know, I didn't pay for it. It's it's like it was better than Hallmark, I guess. Um, but uh, and then her review was basically like, it's likable. It's nice. And I was and I was like, OK, not a rave, but whatever. But like I found myself all of a sudden being like, I think I really just want nice right now. And so um, I had finished Taste the Nation, who was telling me, Love, Victor is here on your queue. <laughs> so like, you want to watch it? I'm like, yes, yes, I do. Um, I actually ended up being charmed by it. Uh, it's already much better than Love, Simon, I feel, just because it features Latinx family and the lead. His name is Victor, clearly, Victor. Um and because it's a series, you know, there's way more character development, not just with him, but with everyone else, including his family. And like his mom is played by Ana Ortiz. So I love her. Um, his sister's great. Like it's, it's really like a pretty, you know, even the secondary characters, you know, they can be a little irritating, but then they eventually got a little bit more depth. And when they had their own romances, it was pretty sweet. Um, and then also for some reason, Everyone neglected to tell me that Ali Wong was in this show. Um, she's popping up she's a surprised. lot everywhere, I feel Well, like. yeah, I'm so glad that she's working, working, right? Like, she's never going to not be popular and she's always be in demand. But I think, like, just seeing her get a paycheck for being, like, in, in a series that has nothing to do with being Asian or whatever is great. Like, it makes me feel better about her, like, longevity, right? So she plays a teacher. I don't remember what subject. And she is over the top and really funny and she wears these really weird like high-waisted like almost 80s pants <laughs> and she has like a boyfriend named Omar and you know but it's only like two episodes that she's really in but they were great moments and she makes the most of it of course and her um, eyeglasses frames are white so nice. just so you know um, so and Love then, Victor is a it's yeah. a it's a high school rom-com right yes it's a high school so basically I've forgot what Victor oh Salazar so the Salazars move from Texas to um, Atlanta Georgia for mysterious reasons that we find out during the series Mm. and um, and because he is a sophomore Victor's kind of excited because he doesn't quite know himself and he feels that maybe starting in a new city a new city that's also fairly open-minded because Simon who went to that school is kind of a legend now for having come out and finding his boyfriend and having it sharing a kiss on the ferris wheel that's in the movie spoiler alert but um (laughs) um but yeah so like the fact that they you know make him a hero and he's famous at the school he was like well maybe they're really like embracing gay people even though he couldn't even think of those words he was just like i'm kind of confused i don't know what's going on um and so he starts dating the most popular girl in the school um and actually seems to be enjoying it and likes kissing her and so he's like yeah i couldn't be but then like the hot guy he who he had his eye on from the first day he happens to start working at the same um their baristas at the same coffee shop and there's like many moments of them like like him teaching him how to make foam uh, and stuff like that so it's actually very sweet um there's some actually I think genuinely funny moments and I was waiting for it and they gave it to me, which was the changing in the, the clothing montage where they actually somehow work in that he and that boy are on a road trip um, and they have, he has, he needs a suit. And so they go to a thrift store. <laughs> so oh. um, yeah, it was, I just found it enjoyable. And I think 
it's it has a natural ending that could leave it open for another uh, season. If not, then I think it's a still a very satisfying ending. Um, but yeah, so I I hope it gets more. I love singing just just these different faces that you don't normally see. Yeah, um, yeah. So Marvin, what's popping with you? All right, so. Um, some of you may know that I have another podcast that I host called Books and Boba, which is a book club podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. And through the podcast, I've been able to uh, get exposed to a lot of different books. And this past week, um, I read a great novel called um, Parachutes by Kelly Yang in preparation for an interview we're hoping to do with her. Um, Parachutes is a YA novel with dual narratives taking place at a um, private high school in East Covina, which was amusing to me as someone <laughs> who grew up in the San Gabriel Valley um, because There's I know no East Covina. there is no East Covina. Um, there is a West Covina and a Covina. I love that. Um, but um, <laughs> the city of East Covina doesn't exist. But uh, the story is about two girls. Um, one is Danny, a Filipina uh, who was attending the school on scholarship. Um, she is the ace um, member of her speech and debate team who also has to help her mom um, with the bills by working a side job as a maid. And the other main character is um, Claire, who is a parachute kid who was sent to America to attend high school because um, she was having trouble with her own school back in Shanghai, um, due in a large part to her independence streak, rubbing her very Chinese teachers the wrong way. And her parents oh. decided it would probably be easier to send her to America. Um, so at least they can claim that she had a um, foreign education and still safe face because uh, that's super important in Chinese families. So Danny's family becomes the host family for Claire. And uh, a lot of conflict occurs because of the friction between the two girls and their different um, class standings. You know, Danny is from a working class family. And Claire, of course, is a four or die, um, a child of like super rich parents and quickly becomes ingratiated in a group of, I guess you can call them mean girls. Um, and a lot of the book is exploring the dynamics between, you know, these parachute kids who were sent yeah. to America by their parents. I think the assumption for the parachute kid is that there is no like adult oversight. They're like left to your kind of to their own devices. Like the parents will set them up with like a cash flow or like maybe help to come in like cook and clean, but there's like no family looking after them or no adult like supervising them. So they're kind of just left to fend for themselves. Yeah. So the story starts out kind of like um, you know, check out the super crazy rich teen Asians, but but the story um, evolves into a narrative about um, sexual harassment and the way institutions protect themselves um, and the harassers over the victims. And um, both characters, Danny and Claire, uh, become entangled in their own um, dilemmas involving sexual harassment and even sexual assault. And the story becomes more about their journey in um seeking justice and not letting their abusers get away with what they did, even if it means risking um, more than they're comfortable with. And the story is actually based on Kelly Yang's real life um, experience with sexual assault and the institutions, um, in her case, Harvard Law School, that uh, protected her abusers and instead came after her for even deigning to bring up charges and not backing down. And I felt that during, um, especially these past few weeks where a lot of serial abusers and people who've gotten away with using their power and structures to protect themselves um, are getting called out, um, it was a really good companion piece to um, these times. And obviously, trigger warnings and content warnings abound if you're going to recommend this book. But I think it's definitely a book that's worth reading. Um, that sounds good. Um, another hard one, but at very it seems very enriching sort of choice. Yeah. Uh, the book, again, is Parachutes by Kelly Yang. It came out a month or two ago, so it should be available at booksellers everywhere. Uh, remember to shop local. Um, and on that note, that'll also do it for our What's Poppin' um, check-in segment. When we come back from the break, we'll be talking all about the new Padma Lakshmi food series, Taste the Nation. We'll be right back. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Marvin. And I'm Rira. We're the host of Books and Boba, a book club and podcast dedicated to books by Asian and Asian American authors. Every month we pick a book by an Asian author to read and discuss on the show. We read a wide variety of genres from contemporary to historical fiction, fantasy to memoirs, and crime thrillers to romance. Some of our past book club picks are Pachinko by Minjin Lee, Sorcerer to the Crown by Zen Cho, and Devotion of Suspect X by Keigo Higashino. We also go over what's new in the Asian American literary world and chat with some talented Asian authors about their work. So whether you want to start reading for fun again or diversify your TBR list, we got your Asian literature cravings covered. For more info, check out our website at booksandboba.com. You can listen to us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. Part of the Potluck Podcast Collective. And welcome back to Good Pop. Uh, last Friday, Hulu released their new original series, Taste the Nation, with Padma Lakshmi, um, where Padma, who um, a lot of us know as the host of Top Chef, uh, goes on a journey across the U.S. exploring the rich and diverse food cultures of various immigrant groups. Um, so I know this is a, a show that both of you have watched. Um, have you watched the whole way through? I've only seen four episodes. So I haven't I watched, watched all the whole of it. thing yet. Yeah, I've, seen like, I've seen like 90% of it. <laughs> Um, but it's 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 very well done. I really enjoyed it. I think Padma, seeing Padma in this makes me realize how underutilized she has been in Top Chef, which, I mean, again, I think we've talked about this before. It makes sense. She's not the star. It's really about the chefs. Um, it was really fun seeing her in like Italy and speaking fluent Italian at the end of season 17. Um, but she's she's a very funny, interesting kind of quirky lady and i'm glad we got to spend some like more one-on-one time with her and her point of view yeah Yeah. i think that's interesting because i mean we'll get to the like sort of meaty part of it but i do want to sort of piggyback on about like the padma sort of like showcasing her personality because there's something about the way that they actually make a point to edit in those moments because you could see a lot of this stuff go, um, like going on the cutting room floor on a regular show. Um, and they make a point to always begin with a sort of slightly behind the scenes thing. Like, Oh, we caught them in this sort of, sort of unplanned moment. Like, let's say the one where like Ali Wong and her like look, peek through like the windows of a place and it's like a mahjong you know parlor, uh, yeah. parlor and then they get caught peeking in like, Oops, sorry yeah and i was like that feels very real but then of course they were just like recording them the whole time anyway so but they have so many moments of that just start off kind of like in their cold open um and then there are moments where like let's say she she asked the guy who was um in uh what was the what was the place anyway it was like german food and his uh his last name is kegel and so she asked if like he's related to the person who did you know the cake like coined the kegel exercise and he's like of course and she's like i've been doing it the whole show and it's just like (laughs) moments like that i'm just like oh they would totally cut that out of like top chef but here i'm just like i'm so glad that they made a point to leave that in you know because it, it shows also why maybe she's a disarming you know interviewer um to get like a lot of these things sometimes aren't necessarily uncomfortable but they are you do have to kind of get people to talk about maybe more than just a recipe and you know that takes time to sort of build up that rapport yes so i will say that she does a fantastic she's also the executive producer of this show which i think is the reason why we're seeing a lot of kind of these behind the scene things and i do think it's really smart and she just i love how she talks to like all these people she's talking to um, you know, she seems to be able to make genuine connections with all of them and really get them comfortable. Like she seems to like get along with everyone regardless of, you know, and she talks to such a wide variety of people in the show from, you know, those the 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 restaurant, you know, the restaurant owners who like ended up voting for Trump at the border to, you know, Native American like healers to, you know, these Thai women who are you know, who have been, you know, who have all married like white American GIs and moved to Vegas. Like it, it's such a large swath. I actually think it's a, probably a wider swath than most shows like this cover because, you know, everyone loves Bourdain and Anthony Bourdain. Um, he still talked mostly to, you know, like chef foodie people, you know, people in the industry or kind of um, 
like well-known personalities that well, he would bring to certain like like their home countries or like bring to like where their family historically is from a lot of times they're still like white men like traveling in a in a country that has been colonized by white men or white people um so that was always like as as good of an interviewer as he was and i think as good as a highlighter he was of these stories sometimes i always i did question some of his like who he brought on the journeys with him um and who he chose to highlight versus yeah so i i love the fact that she's kind of talking to like people who don't typically get showcased they're not necessarily like chefy chefs or not always chefy chefs um but they're all cooking and they're all participating in food culture and the making of american food culture i mean yeah i mean i feel like um like you both said um i really enjoyed how the show really lets her personality come out um and shows her like kind of genuine reactions and conversations with these people the, the one thing that i kind of missed and this is probably on me um kind of missing Bourdain's show was um like he was a really like really good writer um and a really good um kind of the way he waxes poetic about things um i think padma does a really good job too but it seemed a lot more like you got a lot more of her personality through her conversations than her narration yeah right? i mean I don't necessarily know if I missed that because Bourdain is Bourdain and he is literary. Um, and it, that mm. shows in the way he speaks. He's He was also like, he didn't just do cookbooks. He was a writer. He was also a fiction writer. Um, so he's definitely going to excel at that. And you're right, like there's personality, but I think also like the, I think just kind of going on what you said as far as like, what are the stories she's telling? I do wonder about like how, let's say these brides from Thailand would have, first of all, would they have been ever talked to by Bourdain? Um, but also how would they have reacted to him versus to her? Cause the one thing I do have to say is like, she's a woman, first of all. And so the conversations and the type of, reactions are going to be different but also she's not a white woman and so like a lot most of the cuisine she was actually super familiar with a lot of the spices and a lot of those things like the one that she knew the least was probably the native cuisine um but she would always like taste something and be able to say it tastes like this this and this and sort of kind of give us yeah. a concept but yeah like she didn't have to like no one had to explain to her what galanga was you know um and stuff like that and it was and i know part of it is not just because she is indian but you know like most of the times when chefs learn they sh learn french cuisine right and then like if they branch out is like Mexican or Asian. Um, but with her, I feel like she genuinely has an interest in so many cuisines that have been like, you know, like sort of parallel to her own that um, she does have a lot of knowledge in so many that I mean, like just like how she's multilingual. I feel like she has. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a yeah. lot of knowledge. I mean, something this show definitely solidifies is her status as like a badass, awesome person that like I want to be friends with because I'm sure it's it'd be Just a lot of fun. Champagne with Padma. <laughs> oh, champagne Padma. I mean, speaking of like being a woman through this, there was a lot like that first episode, the one in El Paso, when she was talking to the um the conservative Republican guy who owns that diner that looked awesome. I want to eat there. But like how he was like, was she holding his hand or was he holding her hand? I mean, hand? it was, I think it was a mutual thing. I mean, she's, she's a hugger. She's very touchy feely. Um, and it might have been just like not even calculated, but more of like, this is how you deal mm -hmm. with a person as far as like him and the rapport that you have. And you change it up depending on who it is. That's what I kind of felt like. I think that, you know, like, yes, he's a Republican. He voted for Trump and he had no explanation for like he couldn't understand why people don't like Mexican people, you know, um, and uh, and yet he still will vote a certain way. And there was not any sort of judgment in her questioning. It was just like, just going to let you answer those questions. And um, the people who work for him, they're just like, yeah, you know, he's just him. You know, they kind of accept him for who he is, despite having wildly opposing views, I'm sure. Um, and mm. honestly, that's so much the way it is in most of the country. Like, I wish I could say that, like, everyone in my sphere who I actually have to deal with and who might I, I might even like, you know, are 100 percent liberal. Um, but, you know, besides just family members, there are, you know, there's some other problematic people who 
yeah, I might have muted them <laughs> you know, or something, but they haven't been cut out of my life, really. So, I mean, it, I think it was I, I really was into that. And I think some people wanted it to get pushed harder. Um, like, why would you even ask these women about this boss? Because what if they felt like put upon or like that they couldn't answer honestly. And I don't think, A, that that's necessarily the case. I think the way she interacts with people kind of genuinely shows that she wants them to be comfortable and, you know, she wants to hear what their their true feelings are. Um, but also, I, I just, I don't know. I, I, I don't think that's that show. I think the show sets up many hard truths, but it also is not about, like, disgruntlement, and stuff like that, but more of like, what can we do now? Like the the native things was, uh, oh my god, that episode was just like so sad and discouraging in some aspects, but at the same time, it was still a celebration of food, and they're the one group that they're not immigrants, you know. And so for them to talk about like the forty mile like hell, acre of I hell, think, yeah, acre of hell, forty acre of hell, and I was just like, holy crap! And so I was like, okay, clearly, do I not? only need to listen to all these podcasts and read these books and whatever about, you know, the black struggle, but definitely I need to learn way more about natives because I think that is actually lacking far more because I feel, felt like growing up in Texas and in general, hating things like Gone with the Wind made me like learn certain things about slavery already on my own. But native stuff, I just felt like overwhelmed because I don't understand all these tribes. I don't understand any of this stuff. And also it's probably the least thing that's to, um, you know mentioned in school so it's so shameful um but yeah so it's overall a positive show and um i like that it definitely asks you to pay attention to the person who's giving you the plate yeah and i don't know how, how people feel about this aspect but i actually love the little like snippets of when she's giving you the history down low the context the historical political social context of the whatever topic she's talking about like i learned more collectively it's probably what like less than five minutes throughout the show like they're very quick they're very concise she's like really great like you know historical graphics kind of to go with them and i like learn more about that stuff she talks about chinese exclusion act she talks about food sovereignty you know trail of tears mm -hmm. um like slavery you know gives kind of that overview in like i it, and there were some things I didn't even know, like this concept of food sovereignty was not yeah. something that had ever crossed my mind. I think I've heard the word and I had no clue what it meant. And just in that, like what, like you were saying, three to five minutes, I learned so much and like got names of people like that podcaster that I was like, okay, look up what she's doing and and like learn more. And um, yeah, there's there's like a trove of stuff that now I can pursue. I, I I had no clue. Like in LA, I knew a lot of these groups, but like, let's say I had no clue in New Jersey, Patterson, um, that there is Little Lima. Right? Was it Little Lima? Yeah. Yes. Um, of <laughs> of Peruvians uh, and who very much keep the Peruvian culture alive um, there. And I'm just like, that's cool. I don't know when I can travel again, but I kind of want to check that out because we do have some Peruvian food here in LA. I don't remember them there being a huge enclave to that point, um, to that same level um, here. So I was like, okay, because we you know we have our little. Ethiopia, we have little Tokyo, um, uh, Thai town, stuff like that. But I was like, do I'm sure we have a Peruvian area, but it's not as known as like Patterson, Little Lima. Seguro uh, Valley actually has some pretty dope Peruvian spots. So I've had, no, I've recommend. had some, come over. <laughs> look, I've had some, and like, and that's why like not all the food was unusual to me. But I just meant like not just restaurants, but I meant like actual like cultural enclaves because they were learning the dances and um and 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 just everything like that and so like they, they were having parades and i just yeah i thought it was interesting so uh it, it it i think even ending on so the final episode is in hawaii and you know they look at how japanese culture had to be swallowed up um because of the uh, uh, Pearl Harbor attacks, because while the mainland 
Japanese Americans went into internment camps, like the Japanese Americans in Hawaii did not because they were made up so much part of the labor that their the economy would come to a standstill. So and they didn't have people who wanted to like steal their stuff like they did here in the mainland. And so they but they still had to kind of very much act the part and basically be as American, i.e. white as possible. And so like they have this guy who's like a he's a chef and he's talking about how he grew up not ever eating Japanese food. I was like, what? <laughs> You're in Hawaii? And so like he had like pot roast and potatoes and things like that. And he had to learn Japanese food. And then so the uh, the sort of that mix of Japanese food with the Polynesian Hawaiian sort of stuff and like the influences of the Japanese food cuisine in poke let's say was i thought fascinating because i just eat all poke really and i love going to hawaii because anywhere you go you can get that you can get a musubi in a gas station all that type of stuff like i love that cuisine but i just yeah i i I definitely learned some stuff there that was interesting and i hadn't thought before after having visited hawaii so many times i actually thought that last episode where she talks about the japanese culture and influence in hawaii was Probably the most problematic episode, though. Um, that episode actually kind of let me down a little bit because I think as we kind of dive deeper into the discourse of representation and, you know, like privilege, especially in our own Asian American community, um, you know, that dominance or that kind of like, even though they were brought in as laborers and, you know, a lot of working class Japanese people. Um, it, you know, it was at the cost of still like a native, native Hawaiian, um, sovereignty, right? Um, you know, mm-hmm. Hawaii was annexed and there was a vote whether it should be a state or not, but there was never, this, this was brought up in PBS's Amer- Asian Americans documentary mm-hmm. series, but there was briefly, very briefly, briefly. And again, too, they didn't yeah. really dive into it yeah. either, right? Yeah. So Whose I, stories I would are getting love told? to see that conversation about, you know, and again, I think it, it's such a good kind of representation of Asian Americans specifically East Asian Americans in the United States, this weird gray area, this weird liminal space between one, I always say it's like one foot in the privilege pool and one foot mm-hmm. in like the oppressed pool. And then even within that community being, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm Chinese American. Um, and like, you know, even within the Asian American community, having one foot in the privilege pool, being a light skinned cisgendered Asian Chinese woman, um, I'm being cognizant of my privilege compared to some other like, you know, communities, even in my own community. So I would have I I just feel like she didn't dive enough into that conversation because the dominance came at the cost of someone else. Well, I definitely I definitely agree on like that was a missed opportunity. However, I also wonder how many stories are not being told for every single episode. That's like it's 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 it. There is a limitation. I that's why I was saying, like, I know I've actually heard of criticisms for the uh, Juarez uh, um, El Paso episode that, like, there were so many things, like, even who they decided to focus on, like, restaurant-wise was, you know, passing over some of the women in the community who were doing better work or whatever. And so I'm just like, it is true. There are definitely going to be some voices that are not heard. But I, I like the fact that you're bringing it up because maybe that means season two you know, yes. that's that's like, let's show the other side of the coin. Um, and like, I, I think, you know, would I have liked to have seen more like Vietnamese stuff? Sure. <laughs> but I know we're not always the first, you know, <laughs> like Asian group that's going to be like, um, and I would love it if it were in Houston. Um, oh, yes. The Viets in the Gulf episode. Season yeah. two. Let's get a yeah. season two. Yeah. Because, you know, it's. I don't want it in OC. Like, you know, it's like I want it in Houston. Um, or or possibly New Orleans. But uh since I'm from Houston, I have a preference. So one of the episodes I watched was the one about Chinese food, because obviously as I'm skimming through seeing I only have like two hours before this podcast to watch a couple episodes. <laughs> I'm gonna pick the ones that I care about the most. And they had one about chop suey, which um I mean first question, has anyone here ever had chop suey? Because I have never I would know. I, I don't I actually, even really know what it is. I didn't have American Chinese food until I was much older. And I remember I was shocked because in in 
in Houston, I was mainly eating Vietnamese food or Chinese Vietnamese food, like of a certain type. So it still mm-hmm. wasn't like it wasn't like authentic, let's say, San Gabriel Valley Chinese food, but it was definitely not mainstream. So like I remember my friend's family like I was hanging out and they were like, we're ordering Chinese food. And I was like, everyone is ordering stuff. And I was like, what is this? And they're like, don't worry, order this. It's good. <laughs> and I remember getting orange chicken. I hated it because I don't like sweet with my savory. Mm. And I was like, what is this? How, what is, how is this Chinese food? And I was like, with this gooky blah. And so, yeah, I, well, I mean, I don't, I definitely have never had chop sweet. I don't know. It's, they said it was a stir fry, but does it have noodles? Well, I don't. I, I, I don't noodles. think I've ever. Like, yeah, I've never had chop suey neither. But I mean, on <laughs> on, on the point you spent said about Chinese food that's sweet. That's actually kind of the food of where my family's from, and just to like, our where family, we're from. our people. <laughs> but was it yeah. orange chicken? That was the thing. I think there's an <laughs> art to making sweet and savory foods, yeah. like Thai food, like that mm-hmm. does it. Because the spice balances it out. So I can yes. take it. But like it was literally like this crystalline like glop that I I found like I wanted to puke. So <laughs> all I'm hearing is through privileged bitches who got to grow <laughs> up with dope ass Asian food, which, you know, I wish everyone has the opportunity to do so. But And to be fair, like Chinese food for a lot of people is that. And I mean, I can see why um, I can see why orange chicken is popular, because what do Americans love eating? Boneless chicken wings. And what is cho- what is orange chicken? It's pretty much boneless chicken wings with like a sweet sauce on top. Right. Oh, no, I mean, I, I fuck I with orange chicken. I love that. Like Panda. I love Panda Express. I think it's great. Um, But even like. The roots are there. I understand what the roots are. I don't I, just like Chipotle is not Mexican food. It's Mexican-ish. You know, like, you know, that flavor. But back to the episode itself. Um, I enjoyed the history lesson on like Chinese food, especially um the part where it's talking about, yeah, a lot of the Chinese food that we know as Americanized Chinese food has its roots in the food from the Guangdong province, which is where a lot of the f- earliest wave of immigrants came from. And with the, you know, the recent waves coming in after the Immigration Act of 1965, I want to say, um, we've gotten people from different regions in China. Like, so, um, like, um, Jess and I, our families are from um, the northeast coast of China. Um, you have people coming from northern China, western China, central China, um, bringing new foods here. And obviously, it's going to, like, expand the breadth of what Chinese food is and can be in America. Um the one thing that was missing from the episode, though, is like they did poo poo on chop suey a lot, even though at the end, one of the chefs, um, Brandon Ju, did create a elevated version of chop suey. Um, but it was also missing like why and how Chinese food proliferated and became one of the most like ubiquitous American foods in the in the country, uh, which is something if people are interested in, um, should check out um, the search for General So, um, which is a documentary on this specific phenomenon, which goes into more depth about why um, Chinese food. Restaurants are so um, like ubiquitous. Oh, in the States, everywhere! But- Not even just the states. Um, even though I know Taste Nation <laughs> is very domestic, but I I always say no matter where you go in the world, you could be the most further out island, in the Scottish Hebrides. You know, you have to take like a two hour boat ride. There will be a Chinese restaurant. Yeah, like I, you know, uh, I I because I, I love how that's how people think of as American food is Chinese food mm-hmm. containers. That's like how <laughs> how much it's like, you know, and I love that it's like on Christmas, that's the Jewish food, you know, because their uh, Chinese places are open. Um, it is also, I think, one of the most American foods because there really is something for every one. Like you can be vegetarian, you can be vegan and eat, you know, Chinese food oh, easily. Vegetarian um, Chinese food is way better like, than I don't whatever like... crap anyone else comes up with. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Those Buddhist monks know how to, they know how to cook. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and also, it's just like, I don't like sweet and savory. Many people do. But there's plenty of spicy and there's plenty of like, like, I love the the numbingness of like Sichuan. <laughs> um, and so like, there's there's so many regions and types of Chinese cuisine. Like even even when you talk about just the plain old American Chinese cuisine, I can usually get something, you know, that like has just enough, you know, f- spice or flavor that like fulfills my needs. Um but yeah, and uh, now I can't remember where I was going with this. Oh yeah, um, so like the search for uh, general general mm-hmm. souls, you know, um, I haven't watched that yet, but I'm very excited to see it. And I do think, yes, I think that's 
possibly a good failing that you could say for any of these episodes that kind of give you a little bit of history and a little bit of a snapshot um but they well, can't I mean, it can't be as is, in depth as as every episode yeah, is less I mean, than each an episode hour, is 31 right? minutes and like yeah. this is one of the few episodes where i have a lot of outside information going in so of course i'm going to notice the things that they missed mm-hmm. um but something that show does really well is also because it focuses on immigrant cuisines and you can't talk about immigration in america without talking about colonization and imperialism too like it they do drop a lot of like hard truths on like the foods that we love like the mm-hmm. f- very first episode um about mexican food in el paso i mean within the first like segment they like literally say tortillas flour tortillas are colonialist right um it was brought here by yeah. the spanish by europeans true tortillas are made from corn and i think that's like you can love your flour tortillas and your burritos whatever but i know a lot of people honestly believe that flour tortillas are actually authentic mexican food interesting because i always i'm a defender of like if you like flour tortillas great but just know that that's not probably you know it has been accepted and is now used in a lot of you know really great you know mexican restaurants depending on no matter where they are but at the same time yes that's not originally kind of like uh, like let's say in the uh the native episode uh fry bread you know oh yeah like yeah, yeah the first segment talking about fry bread is an invention it's it's it came from tragedy right it came yeah. from governments the U.S. United States government's moving these people off their land and off cut them away from their traditional food source, and all they got were government rations of yeah. gre- like lard and flour. Flour, yeah. And um, but at the same time, they showed a person who ran a native food truck who serves fry bread, and because it is part of actually now the cuisine, um, but like it, but then on the flip side, you see the sort of the extremely original thanksgiving that they did made from everything in their environment so there's no fry bread there um but it and so you see the flip side of like both of the experiences mm-hmm. uh, yeah i mean i think this is the most explicit even more than bourdain's show this is such an explicit like food is political food is tied to all these you know bigger things um she's not hiding it she's not trying to like give you like like disguise it under food porn. There's actually very little cooking in this show. It's very much oh, more about actually, the context about it. I actually think there's quite a lot of cooking because every, I mean, maybe it's not like from beginning to end cooking, but yeah. like every single episode, I look forward to seeing like, okay, what pad am I going to do now? Because she has to get her hands dirty. And I think there's a certain level of sometimes I can see these, maybe just my perception these men like yeah you can go ahead and try to mix this thing and then she you know gets up to her elbows and whatever and like is dealing with it um she's not always perfect at anything because a lot of times you know of course you need skill to perfect the way you do things but i just love that she gets her hands dirty she always wants to taste something um (laughs) and uh but yeah it's not a beautiful chef's table show you are correct on that Yes, maybe I think. Thank you. I think that's what I was trying to articulate. It, it's, I just and I, I, I would love to see. Maybe if someone has time, Marvin. If you have time, do this, please. Like, take the whole breakdown of the show. How many people she meets with, or talks with, or cooks with, and see how much of the people are women <laughs> in her show versus another show like Ugly Delicious, or <laughs> though she was on that show too, or you know, like in any of Bourdain's shows. Um, I. I I just and she's been very explicit about that. She's like, look, I experience the world differently because I'm an immigrant. I'm a woman. I'm a brown woman. Um, I would also add that she is a traditionally beautiful woman. So I do think people underestimate her and her brain and her thoughts, uh, which I, you kind of kind of see in the first episode, right? Like, yeah, and it does get her access though. That's the thing. It's yeah. like I I think not only access to things, but it makes people open up. Like I, I, it's very you know. Jessica Fletcher murder she wrote. Like she's very unassuming <laughs> because she's this like beautiful like model esque woman, and people are like willing to like talk to her because of mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Um, but she's you know she's bringing I think she's bringing a pretty interesting level of discourse to a very big audience. You know it's on Hulu. It's streaming ten episodes, uh, first season obviously. So she can't get to everything. I'm hoping for a second season. 
I um, think it's a no-brainer. I think yeah. I think besides the show being excellent and I've been seeing pretty good engagement, uh her sort of outspokenness from um the, what our current situation is in the country, she's been so outspoken about social justice issues that um I think all of it just coalesced into I don't want to say the perfect timing for the show, but kind of is because it's highlighting all the like not every story, but many stories that are not told. And hopefully this opens the door for more. Yeah. Yeah. And I do like the fact that this is not a show about chefs. <laughs> we have a lot of those now. As much as I love Top Chef and as much as I enjoyed this recent season, you know, chef culture, I think, also needs to have its reckoning more so than it. it's kind of, it started a little bit, but I don't know if it's had that like, there was a big wave around when Me Too was happening about two years ago. But I still think like chef culture isn't so like it's like shitty, right? It's like patriarchal and annoying just, and they elevate these assholes and you know, just looking I know just kind of tangenting to like top chef, I've I've been rewatching a lot of the old seasons and like so many of them you can't even show them anymore. Or I, I w- it's surprising that they're still being shown because there are so many problematic people in every single episode. Like there's one episode where it's Josh John Beck, who was, you know, me too outed for sexual harassment in his restaurant. Paula Dean. Hmm. That was like one challenge. I was like, ooh, and that was a season where like and like they have at least every season has like one like they've 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 been very explicit like bullying on the show. There are some, you know, winners mm-hmm. in fact who have been like, you know, charged with domestic violence. Yep. And, and Asian. And Asian, yeah, we trash too. Mm-hmm. Um and and just like even just some of the even like the lesser contestants that don't really have a name, like just behaving horribly <laughs> to some of these female contest like chef contestants, yeah. even as recently as like season, I think, four, 15, mm-hmm. the one in uh, 16 or 15, where uh, Chef Tanya from Brown Sugar Kitchen, you know, she was a, a black female chef owner of brown sugar kitchen in oakland and she just was like you could just tell she was so over like all these like bros like these dude bros um you know there was like nicholas winning being a little bitch the entire season and winning over um nina compton and just just like this like i do think chef culture needs a reckoning yeah Mm -hmm. it's really hard to like consume them like as most things it's it's very hard to consume things right now because you just know that like you don't know who these people really are behind this, the scenes. This is also why, you know, like I'm not saying never have heroes or women of color are going to be exempt from like being bad people. But, you know, if we're talking about, let's say, a woman of color going around the country and talking about food um, me- and meeting with people like Samin Nosrat, uh, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. Uh, is a different type of food show. It, it was more internationally traveled. This was domestic. Um, and But she did say, same thing, I wanted to highlight the moms and the grandmothers in the kitchens, you know, and making the food and whatever. So hers was about learning about the concepts of food. So it didn't have to, it, only occasionally did it dig into like history, but it was definitely more about understanding the ingredients, but also who was using it, how they were using it. And inevitably it was the women. Um because, you know, everyone yeah. starts cooking at home first. They don't immediately go to a, a kitchen in like a chef. Um, so, yeah, it, it was just fascinating to me that, yes, there is a reckoning and there needs to still be. And some of it that's happening. Um, but this both of the like Taste of Nation, I think, will help show that um, as far as like how how much influence that these women have been having. Yeah, I mean. I think it's interesting that both um, Taste the Nation and Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, um, the episodes themselves aren't necessarily focused on places, right? Because this isn't a travel show. This is a show about food and culture. And like, um, I guess to wrap up the conversation, I wanted to bring up, um, did, did you guys watch the Dosa episode? Yes. I watched all I thought that was, no. So personally, I thought that was probably the best one I've saw um, because it was probably the most personal one for Padma herself, right? But it also like, mm-hmm. Um, anything about like parents like will probably always get me as a child of immigrants and this idea or this like worry that like she might not be able to pass down like her 
culture and heritage to her own daughter which like that first scene the the cold open where the daughter <laughs> says she likes pancakes more than dosas she likes pancakes more than she likes <laughs> dosas and you can see how like she's trying to be like that's cool and i've i've definitely been krishna like i went through a phase where i did not want to eat chinese food i was just tired of it and like looking back i was like wow what a fucking idiot because <laughs> now all well, i want to eat is eat chinese food well, Krishna didn't say she doesn't like dosas. She just said she likes pancakes first. Pancakes first. Um, and like, and I love, yes, you get to see her mom, but you also get to see her daughter. And I think the passing down of food and recipes are things that we all think about. Like, do I know all the recipes my parents know? Um, and that's why I also love, like, if since I clearly am, you know, watching her on Instagram, like her and her daughter and how they cook together all the time is great. I'm just like, there are times where I'm like, yes, Padma's a wonderful, like beautiful woman. But I was like, I wouldn't have minded her as a mom. Like <laughs> to oh teach God. me in the and kitchen. She, yeah. And when she oh. cooks with her mom, though, it's so funny because then like the sh- she's all of us, right? <laughs> she's like, mom, like, how do you do this? Like, wait, what? Wait, what? Like, how much? do? What? Also, the like, fact that no- nothing. You added that yeah, already? Also, the fact that nothing she does is good enough for her mom in the kitchen. Oh, she's yeah. like second guessing yeah. everything she does in that kitchen like or she's like yeah. i don't like this one vegetable like pad was like almost 50 right she's like she's like in her late 40s incredibly so but and her mom's like no it's good for you you should eat it and i'm like oh well it it's, just never ends does it never it's ends? the bitter melon right because i don't like that or at least it i don't like, like bitter melon. terrible yeah. but it's good for your skin my apparently. mom or brain yeah Is my it brain mom or skin I, I don't remember probably both it's probably like yeah. good for your chi too yeah. My mom used to make this bitter melon soup. I don't know if it's similar where like she hollows it out and she makes like a stuffing and then she like yeah. ties thread around it again to put it in the soup. And she I remember even as a kid, she uh, as a kid, I was always wondering about this because she was like, I'll pay you a dollar to eat a bowl of the soup. And I'm like, nope, <laughs> not worth it. You know, because <laughs> like a dollar. Uh, <laughs> but but yeah, and to this day, I need to actually try it again because I'm not saying that I like bitter a lot, but I have noticed that I'm more open to bitter it's notes not in my food just and drink. The bitter though, it's also the texture. No, I'm sure there's something and also else. the like cucumberness of it. It just it, it's I not. I don't mind that. It's, it's, all I'm saying is I hadn't had it in decades so i'm not saying i'm gonna love it but i wonder if i tolerate it um there are definitely things that i'm more open to palette wise because you know my palate your palate does actually evolve Um, yeah that's why you like sweeter when you're a kid and you may still like sweet as an adult but you drink coffee which you know yeah and i'm sure all this training for krishna will make her a more open food person in the future because how could she not be because that would be the ultimate betrayal to Padma if she becomes a picky eater (laughs) Oh my god, could you imagine if you had a kid and all they wanted to eat was like buttered noodles and chicken what I, tenders? What I call beige foods. Oh my god. <laughs> like potatoes on potatoes. <laughs> but it wasn't until I moved away from the St. Hero Valley for college that I realized just how much I would miss it. And even just the region like there's like Marvin mentioned with the recent immigrant waves, you know, like you can get a lot of different kinds of Chinese food in the San Gabriel Valley. It's not just Cantonese food. It's not just, you know, the food mm-hmm. of our people, but there's like Taiwanese breakfast. There's Hananese, you know, chicken rice. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, nor- like Beijing, you know, the roast duck, which is like a Northern specialty. There's like Xi'an food and all this. And I'm just like, there's like a lot of times if you go to different, you know, I went to school in like NorCal. It's a big Asian population. I mean, they did their whole episode in San Francisco. And even then I'm just like, finding it lacking and I'm like damn so I learned how to cook mm-hmm. a lot of shit when I was away from home mm-hmm. and I will never take it for granted yeah. that's why I need to I guess move closer to there so I can get all of it because like all, most of that is new to me like living in LA you know you get used to the things that are the most popular so um, I clearly have had like Xiaolong Bao and like Sichuan and um, Taiwanese breakfast, which not so much my thing. I don't really like the the donuts. Whatever. <gasps> it's not just I, the donuts, though. It's, it's yeah. not I know, just the but donuts. There, there are other things. I do like congee in most cultures. Um, so like I love it in Vietnamese culture and other ones. Um, and I know that's something some people don't like. But so for me, it was just like I just need access to more of it to be able to try them all. And, but they do blur together. 
I don't necessarily know what's what. <laughs> I'm just like, I like this. I'll point at it and be like, yes, I like that. I don't know I, which I will, Chinese is. I will give that to you. Uh, if you do, if you did not grow up with a Chinese family, like a, like a fairly mm-hmm. recent Chinese immigrant family, and you don't speak or read Chinese, mm-hmm. there's definitely a barrier. Like, I don't read Chinese and I don't barely speak it. So I only know these things because it's stuff my family has got. But when I'm like on my own, I can't. I cannot handle myself. Like I, I have to just order what I know. Like yes, is good. Yeah. Well, going back to the episode, I enjoyed watching seeing her geek out with um that other cookbook author. Uh, I've got her name. Maha Joffrey. Yeah. Yeah. I just love it when they were like, "Never take the seeds out. If you take the seeds out, what's the point?" <laughs> like. Yes, uh, the chili yeah. pepper. I was like, "Put. I'm gonna get that tattooed." Like, yeah. what's the That's point? The heat. Um. Which I love. I did. Um, yeah, no, I enjoyed just... how everyone underestimated her ability to take heat. Oh yeah, throughout, throughout the including series, including her own mother, <laughs> including her own mother. Except the one thing that did conquer her was the um, Sichuan flower pepper. Well, that because like it numbs your tongue. <laughs> That's not like a typical experience when you eat something. You're like shit. I can't feel my tongue anymore. Yeah, I think I think also you use it as an ingredient. You don't just put it on your tongue, and so I think. Definitely, yeah, it was a, a lot more potent than. <laughs> also, shout out to Hot Biracial Farmer. <gasps> right? <laughs> if I was not a happily coupled up woman, I would go move out and become his farmer prairie wife. I would be so down. I have many friends who have feel the same way. They are single. So if by chance, sir, if you are listening, call a sister up. <laughs> She'll hook it up. That was pretty awesome to see that. Um, so it was a, um, it was in the Chinese food episode. They went to a farm in uh, Northern California, Bolinas, California, um, where a farmer. There's a farmer who grows Asian produce, um, which I think I don't know if a lot of people realize that like Chinese people have like a whole different set of like produce that we use for our dishes that you don't sell in the local Ralphs or something because these are greens and stuff that most Americans don't know you can use as food. Yeah. I mean, like, that's why we go to Asian markets, because it's not just the, let's say, condiments and stuff, but like the green things that I don't even know the name of, but I know I need it to make a, a proper spring roll. Um, <laughs> yeah. Or I like that green but one. But not the other I like green that one. other green one yeah. a little it, less. Yeah. That green one, the stalks are better than the <laughs> leaves. But that green one is like bitter if you don't cook it enough, right? Yeah. Do you know if that guy does like a CSA box or something? Do he would he even ship that far down? It's pretty far, but maybe shipping. He probably only like supplies those like restaurants in 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 Chinatown, anyways. You know, can he ship himself down here? He should have a CSA box that also <laughs> includes like a photo, a sexy calendar, a, a signed like hip yeah. Shot. Oh wait, he, they might Marvin. They do have a oh, CSA. I thought you meant a calendar. <laughs> oh, I would. Uh, we should leave that in the comments. You know, farm workers, they're, it's, yes, they, they are pretty jacked because of, you know, all the manual labor. So All the hoeing they have to do. <laughs> it's called Shaoshan Farm. S-H-A-O-S-H-A-N. Oh, San. Oh, that means mountain. Sorry, I butchered that. But yes, it's spelled S-H-A-O-S-H-A-N Farm. Yeah. Have to check that out. Oh, shit. Should I buy one? Okay. Yes. You know, if I was living on my own, I would consider it. Um, but because we have, I mean, we also have like pretty good access to Chinese groceries where we are, you know? Yeah, but I just want to support hot farmers. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, um, final verdict. I'm pretty sure we all recommend this show, but. Uh, would recommend make sure you have snacks on hand. Every single episode. Like, if I didn't have to binge it for work, I would have, like, either try to have the proper food at least per episode just because you do start craving each thing um like i i saw the the persian food episode and they made two tadiks and i was like oh i gotta make another one because i tried making one once and it was fine but i broke broke the thing the shell of the the rice and so yes absolutely have food on hand preferably food that is similar If you can. Yeah. Um, I would also recommend um, everyone watch it. Um, obviously, they're 30-minute episodes, so they're not going to be able to cover the entirety of everything they try to. But you do learn a lot. And um, Padma is an extraordinary host. She 
holds her own really, really well. And you do learn a lot about uh, about food culture and, you know, American culture in general. So um, check it out. It's available for streaming on Hulu now. And let us know what you think, I guess. Um, and on that note, that'll also do it for this episode of Good Pop. Uh, Jess Han, thank you once again for joining me on this journey of talking about the pop culture that we love. Thanks for having us, Marvin. <laughs> if you want to follow more of your work, where can they go? They can find me at Jess Jew Tweets on Twitter. And I'm at Hanonymous, H-A-N-H-O-N-Y-M-O-U-S. And you can follow me at Marvin Yuet. You can follow the podcast at Good Pop Club. Good Pop is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian-American hosted podcasts, including The Collis Bruce, First of All, The Korean Drama Podcast, and more. You can learn more about The Collective and our fellow Potluck pods by going to the website podcastpotluck.com. Um, yeah, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Kim! Steve? What's going on? Tell me, what do you know about K-dramas? Oh, um, they have something to do with the drama that comes from K-cup coffee pots? Because you know they're bad for the environment? Uh, no. Oh, you mean Korean dramas? Yeah, I know that they are very grounded in reality. No, that's actually the opposite of what happens. It, it sounds like you don't know anything about K-dramas. Yeah, I was just guessing. That's actually perfect. Remember Will, Phil, and Joanna did that Korean drama podcast? Yeah, they saw Boys Over Flowers. Yes, and people apparently listen to it and want another season. But Will and Phil are still recovering from that season. Oh my god, are they okay? I did hear they tried to give themselves amnesia. Oh, is that a K-drama thing? Yeah, pretty much. So... Are you guys down to help out with the new season of the Korean drama podcast? So we're going to be watching a K-drama this time? Which one? Secret Garden from 2010. It was a big hit. And if you're down, check out the Korean drama podcast at koreandramapod.com. Gotcha! Am I going to see sauna towel buns?